I'm Alyssa Deweese. And I'm Sharon DeRozier. And this is Faculty Roundtable, the podcast where faculty discuss faculty development. This is a production by the Rockwell Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence. Each episode will feature a new group of Embry-Riddle worldwide faculty members discussing teaching strategies and innovative solutions to common online classroom concerns. Roundtable, and we'd like to introduce our guests. Let's go ahead and start with you, Cheryl. Good morning, everyone. My name is Cheryl Lentz. I've been around the block with Embry Riddle for quite some time at many different locations, both Albuquerque, Vegas, and now I am out in Chicago. Veteran teacher of 22 years in there, also well published and a TEDx speaker. So I'm looking forward to sharing some of my interesting experiences along the way. I'm Dr. Christy Kiernan. I am a full-time faculty in the College of Aviation and Graduate Studies. I've been full-time for five years, but before that, I was an adjunct for 12 years for Embry-Riddle as well. I live in Fairhope, Alabama, which for those of us in our industry can be best explained as across the bay from the Airbus final assembly line. So delighted to be here with my colleagues, both old and new. Hi, everyone. I'm Ajish, and uh, I'm from Singapore. I'm attached with the Worldwide College of Business, and um, I'm very new to the organization. I've only been with Embry-Riddle for about five months now, and I'm also very new to the teaching profession. I've only been uh, teaching for a year now. Prior to that, I spent 20 years in the airline industry, managing a range of functions from commercial, sales, marketing, operations, revenue management, etc., So following the pandemic, I exited the airline industry and I pursued new career options. And as part of that, I landed a teaching gig as well. That's where I am. Nice to meet all of you and looking forward to the conversation. And hello, my name is Russell Schultz. I am teaching in the Worldwide College of Arts and Sciences. I am new to Embry-Riddle as well. I started earlier this year. However, I come to teaching with 30 years of experience as a graphic designer, or as I like to say, a visual marketing communication strategist. I have my own business, and I was working as a Chicago police officer and violent crimes detective for 28 years. I just retired in March, and I've also served in communication-related roles within the police department. So I'm originally from Chicago, transitioning to Florida, and I have started in the fall teaching, and I have taught about a total of 14 classes in that short time, both in person and online. So I've taught everything from speech and public speaking to marketing and graphic design, and both online and in person, and really enjoying the experience. Russell, I just noticed that your shirt matches your cup. Russell is wearing a. Doesn't everybody's? <laughs> it's a pink shirt with bananas on it, and it matches his coffee cup. That is the most amazing thing. Okay. So, this episode, we have two veteran faculty members and two relatively new adjunct faculty members, which you might have been able to tell from their introductions. Cheryl and Christy are our experienced faculty members here at ERAU, and Ajish and Russell are our new faculty members. I worked with both of them during their orientations, and I can tell you from experience, they are both amazing. We are hoping to have our new faculty members learn a little something from our seasoned faculty members and vice versa. And hopefully you guys at home might learn some cool tips and tricks as well. 
Does anybody have any thoughts on being a new adjunct or welcoming new adjuncts to the university? One thing that I wanted to point out is that when we do teach in the online asynchronous environment, and particularly when you come on board as an adjunct, it's difficult to feel that affinity within the university and to know who to reach out to. But now having made the leap adjunct to full-time and seeing both, there's nothing but good intentions on the part of the university to support adjunct instructors. I mean, the adjunct workforce is the lifeblood of the university of worldwide. Sometimes it can be hard to figure out because you teach particular classes, not like in a specific department or in a specific program, but that is not something that you should have to tackle alone because it's a little bit isolating, right? So I would just encourage especially new faculty to reach out to the people that you do know. There's lots of folks that you can reach out to, although it's sometimes difficult, but just start with the person you know and then hopefully build that network so that you are not on an island going experiencing something like that, good or bad. And that kind of leads to the question that I had posed before our session as a new adjunct. I didn't feel a lot of connection with others in the university yet. So that was one of my questions as to how should I go about to expand that. And I'm starting to recognize some names through emails that I receive on a regular basis. And I have participated in a couple of the online training sessions and other video sessions, which are really a, a great way, I think, to get to know someone. At the time, I was saying I wouldn't be able to tell anybody about anybody else is personality. Like I haven't really experienced other key faculty here at ERAU with the exception of maybe one or two during my onboarding. But I think this is a great opportunity. I know this is a podcast, but I am currently wearing a very bright pink Hawaiian shirt with bright yellow bananas on this. And well, I also happen to have a matching cup <laughs> that has bright pink and yellow bananas on it. So those of you listening, you can visualize that. Well, I've also used this in my classroom with the first on Online sessions that I have. And to say it gets the students' attention and gets them to understand a little bit about my personality. So now following this recording, because we are actually with video, so we could see each other, even though you listeners at home are listening. But now I have faces to go with the stories. And I think that's a great way to build that community that was lacking before. I guess I've answered a little bit of my own question, but I'll put it out there for other strategies for how to continue to build that connection with others at ERAU, specifically with the faculty because I've been able to do it in my classroom with my students. It's all about relationship building, as Christy said. You have to make sure in the online environment that you don't stay isolated. You have to reach out. And that's sometimes very difficult because we don't want to come off as a whiner. We don't want to come off as less than professional and having goofy situations. But things will happen. The more you are experienced, the more you will know how to handle it. But no one has to have all the answers. And that community is so important because the community doesn't change what happens. The community changes how you react to what happens. And it really does take a village. But sometimes it has to start with us because my boss is not a mind reader, nor am I. And I tell that to my students, if you need help, you need to pick up the phone. And I know picking up the phone is courage because it is making us vulnerable and the courage to be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable or to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and the courage to be vulnerable is something to reach out and show another human being being a faculty or student that you're in need of help or just want to have camaraderie. I used to go to graduations at Emory-Riddle partially because I go to graduation on an aircraft carrier in San Diego. Coolest thing ever. <laughs> but that's how I was able to meet some of these folks with being in Vegas. It was nice when we were all together on ground. But you have to make that ability to reach out just like we're doing here today. And relationship building takes time, but it's worth the effort. So you aren't the island because an island is not the good place to be. You need that sense of community. So my best advice 
pick up the phone and call somebody because that's how relationships will start, even though it's going to be awkward. You can tell I have a wonderful sense of humor that I try and hide behind sometimes because that will often make that icebreaker much easier as the relationships develop. I tell you, I can call up my boss anytime now, personal or professional, but it's taken me years to get that way. So to have the courage just to take the first step is my best advice. Christy, what do you think? Well, actually, I hate to answer a question with a question, but I'll turf it back to Ajish and Russell. We're starting a new program, the Master of Science in Aviation Safety. I'm the program coordinator for that. I'm super excited about it. We have a pool of faculty who teach in this. One of the first things I want to do is build a community between the that faculty, both with myself and the university, but also one of the advantages of being an instructor for Brutal is that the, you can meet other people and build your network with really a pretty amazing people. But I'm also conscious of your time and not asking things of you that are uncompensated. I mean, I don't want to ask people to do voluntary work. So from your perspective, what would be the best thing for someone like me to do to, would it be an individual Zoom call? Would it be a, a faculty meeting? What are the ways in which you would like to be reached out to? I could answer that. And I guess my, my thing is I do believe that one-on-one reach out and connection would definitely be that way. Or as we're doing in this podcast, a much smaller group setting, which is also something that I learned in my courses from my students, my evaluations, they said with having, say, 15 to 20 people on a Zoom call, there's an opportunity for a lot of people to hide in the corners, even though I do my best to draw them out and make sure I'm asking questions of everyone. But then they suggested breakout sessions into smaller groups, which I have now started doing in the latest session of my course. And that has really helped because they can feel like, well, one, there's less place to hide when there's only three or four in the group and they're forced to kind of engage. Plus, you become more comfortable with a smaller group. So definitely anything with a one-on-one connection or the Zoom calls where we can actually see each other or the team sessions, I think those would be tremendous ways to help put a name to a face and a, a personality to a name. And I think those are all great ways to help. That's wonderful. Thank you. And, you know, along those lines, I wanted to ask Ajish, because we do have, you know, a couple of faculty or students that are in opposite time zones. So, you know, I want people all over the world, I mean, we're worldwide, to feel included and as important when I'm asking someone to do something at five o'clock in the morning, (laughs) you know, can kind of give the impression that you're not really considering their needs. So how could we handle that? So maybe what I can answer that by sharing experience, when I receive some feedback from the students about how the course, uh, the experience that they're having. So I reached out to the course uh, coordinator, the person who prepared and set up the course. So it was very interesting and surprising to me that uh, I think it was American Independence Day or something. She was away on a holiday somewhere and she volunteered to wake up at 8 a.m. in the morning on a holiday when she was, you know, took time away from her family bonding time and uh, spoke to me over a Zoom call for close to an hour and a half or 90 minutes to almost two hours, I remember. And she was very patient and she went through every single comment I had and after the holiday when she got back she had a whole list of action items sent down by email to various people that had to do the follow-up on you know some of the feedback I raised some of the concerns I had and so on so that was fantastic and that made me realize that if I keep quiet it is understood that everything is fine and dandy right because I mean come on 
We are yeah. not fresh out of college, you know, we are experienced people that the university has hired, you know. So, of course, the, the university also expects us to have the resources and the, the skills to find answers to all the problems that we have. So, if you keep quiet, probably you suffer in silence. That is what I learned. My session with Dr. Rachel was such an eye-opener for me. And because of that positive experience I had, nowadays I do not hesitate to reach out to anybody and say, hey, by the way, I'm in so-and-so time zone. Can we agree on, on an hour that works for both of us? You know, I don't want to disturb your sleep or your teaching hours. So, on that point, uh, I also wish I had that person I can talk to or see counsel or guidance from uh, right at the time that I was onboarded into the program, right? So, that would have been fantastic. It doesn't even have to be somebody from the subject that I'm teaching or from the college I'm from. So, if every new adjunct or even a full-time faculty can somehow have a shadow mentor or a, or a guide, you know, that can handhold them for the first eight weeks or whatever duration that they are teaching, uh, that would be just a resource they have to knock on the door every now and then and say, hey, I'm having this problem. Do you have any advice for me? And I'm sure people like Dr. Cheryl and Dr. Christie will be more than willing to uh, give some nuggets of advice in such situations. I do get a little concerned about over-communicating or just flooding people's inboxes. Or Is that something that I should be concerned about when reaching out to new faculty or, or not really? I, as a communications instructor, I tell all my students, you cannot over-communicate with me. One of my first lines I tell them, whatever's going on, especially if something's going to be late or they have births, deaths, deployments, the more you could tell me, the better I can handle that situation. Not knowing and not hearing, as she said, the silence, you assume everything's okay, but it's not until somebody actually communicates that you know what's going on. And so I've never really experienced over-communication. Sometimes that flood of email can be a, a little much. Yeah, we are all clever and wise to uh, go through the clutter and mark what is important, you know, screen through them. And I think more communication is better than very little or no communication at all. And we are all smart enough to look through them, prioritize them, action the urgent ones and keep the other ones aside. Can I jump in here for one small little caveat to that? The idea of texting is become an issue for me and others with students just because we can doesn't mean we should. As a communication instructor, I have to sometimes teach my students and other faculty the boundary. Just mm -hmm. because you're up at one in the morning, it's not a good idea to text your faculty at one in the morning. I'm glad you brought that up, Cheryl, because I try in my classes to keep track of communication through Canvas email. So students will sometimes email me through Outlook which is fine. It gets to me just the same, but I encourage them to use Canvas so that all those communications are routed through the class so that when I'm like, oh, I remember somebody told me that they were deploying. Who was it? I can then look in that one source and, and all of that is housed within the Canvas inbox rather than having to go through Outlook. And similarly, when obviously I d definitely want to encourage students to pick up the phone and call and text if they have, uh, because that's immediate. I tell them if you're getting frustrated with something that you're working on and you need to get me immediately, sending me a quick text is best. But then I always try to send back an email through Canvas that summarizes the conversation we had or the communications we had, both so that I can find it again if I need to continue that conversation. I have a record of what we spoke about, but also because there are circumstances where a record of communications will be helpful in resolving situations. So that's just kind of one strategy that I have used that I found helpful. 
Canvas is a great tool. I love Canvas. So since we're talking about building connection, affinity, mentorship, and things like that, well, first I want to take a moment to plug our RCTLE offerings. We have, you know, uh, we have our virtual faculty learning committees. We have our RCTLE lives monthly, and all of those are a great way to learn some new tips and tricks, but also meet other people because we're meeting on Zoom or meeting in the discussion boards, what have you. But one thing that Russell and Ashish, you mentioned is the value of having someone who is there with you immediately when you first start teaching. And we do try to be that person at RCTLE, but we're not in your discipline. So I'm wondering what not only we could do, but maybe what you think your department might do um, in an ideal world to provide that immediate mentorship. One of the things I was most impressed with with ERAU was the setup and the organization and the systems in place to get everything rolling and the checks and balances to make sure the courses are are set up and ready to roll and you've checked all the little check boxes and set everything up. That has really been amazing. And the team there, it might be a response from Melissa or someone else. I start recognizing the names again. That's helpful. And it's like, okay, it's not just going out into a void. But I guess the more more specific responses, kind of like what we were talking about, I think, within the department, be able to know and have a conversation with the department chair or whoever is leading that department is also helpful. And that way, there's somebody that knows who you are, you know who's leading this team, where are we going? So if there is that question, you do have that person you feel most comfortable to reaching out to. I think, again, at the beginning, when I did have a question, all I knew was Alex, who onboarded me, so that's who I spoke with. So having somebody else is always helpful, even if it's just that one. So besides what Russell said, maybe I can share a real life example, right? So maybe that will help us understand um, how a mentor could have or experienced faculty could have helped me. So in the course I was teaching, I myself felt that some of the rubrics were not very clear and they were pre-set up and determined and, you know, is the same rubric used run after run. I'm seeing students getting frustrated. I am frustrated when I'm grading their assessments. So I was like, hey, I know that this rubric rubric can be edited, right? But I don't know whether I have the authority to make changes to the rubric. So I went around asking RCTLE and they told me, okay, you need to refer back to the course administrator. So it took like a few days and then the course administrator says, oh, I need to check with somebody else and blah, blah, blah. You know, in the end, I didn't get to edit the rubric. So if I had uh, Dr. Christie or Dr. Cheryl on my feed dial, I can say, hey, you know, I'm facing this problem in your experience. Mm-hmm. Have you, is it okay to edit the rubric? I mean, do I have the power to do that? Then they would tell me, oh no, that is not acceptable in ERAU. You can absolutely cannot do that. Or they will say, just go and do it, right? Solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Then, 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 then that is settled. I don't have to go on a wild goose chase to find that answer. By the way, I found they don't allow us to edit the rubric at the end of the... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank stone. you, Ajit. Now you've answered stone. that for everyone. <laughs> Well, I think there's one other aspect that's interesting, too, is that there's the official communication channels and there's the unofficial communication channels. And when I was first teaching, those are things that are way out of the norm that I would not have felt comfortable initially as a newbie because they would have been judging, in my opinion, judging everything I did and how well I did it. What I needed was a safe place to just put it all out there and then decide. And so I think there's the official when my boss is being the chair and then when my boss is just being a human being and just saying, all right, so tell me what 
what happened. This isn't any official. And you've got to understand where those lines may be drawn, because I know in this current environment we teach it. I teach a law class. And so we're often a little worried about the litigation and the official things that if we say something, it might officially go somewhere. I think when we announce those barometers, we just need someone to talk to unofficially to kind of give us a lay of the land and to have that safe place. Sometimes those who are department heads, they hear our title before they will hear us. And I need to be very clear with someone. It's like, hey, you know, this isn't, this is off the record. Let's just talk to me. What's going on? How can I help? And let them vent a little bit. Then we can put through official channels. Not that there's anything wrong with there, but there is that point of, I need to have everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because if I don't know everything and we're trying to be politically correct and we're trying to be that whole professional with our bosses can sometimes hinder learning and hinder the ability to be human. And so that's a really tough line to walk sometimes. I also know we have set up a kind of the social media platform for faculty. I don't have time to engage in a social media platform. So for me, it's nice to know that it's there and I get the emails like, hey, your community hasn't heard from you in a while. Yeah, because I'm really, really busy grading things. So I appreciate that it's out there. It's nice that it's there, but that really isn't the best way for me to engage with other people, especially given time constraints. So having, again, going back to that one-on-one is probably as as good as it gets sometimes in terms of having somewhere to go to, as opposed to an online community that's available to you. So uh, can can I just um, interject there and maybe ask a sensitive or a controversial question to to our esteemed seniors here? I noticed that my students, uh, they have labeled me as the most strictest instructor they have encountered in Embry-Riddle because I'm very stingy with the grades I give and I only give A's very rarely to the most deserving person. And they all feel that that is not what they experience with the other subjects they have taken at Embry-Riddle. Apparently, everybody gets an A or an A- minus in Embry-Riddle, right? So... (laughs) So, you know, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I want, and you know, this is something that I have raised in some other discussions as well. You know, are we, are we very generous with grades in the university or is that a problem? What is your experiences like? I do look at the bell curve when it comes to grading. So I do try to ensure that those that are excelling really have the top kind of grade. However, I'm gracious in terms of my understanding of what people are going through. And as I tell them, even though I may wear a pink shirt and you don't get to see my blue sequence tuxedo jacket that I often wear, and I do like to bring my sense of humor, I'm very serious about the topic and what they are learning. And I do have high expectations that they learn the subject matter. So I think the way that I approach that is, you know, it's criterion referenced grading. If every single student in the class meets the requirements to get an A, then they will all get an A. If every single one is performing at a C level, then they will all get Cs. That's how I approach it. And then you had mentioned the rubric and those become pretty important because if you're abiding by that, especially in the Department of Graduate Studies, we've reworked a lot of the rubrics this past year because instructors were getting frustrated that average performance resulted in an A. You know, if you clicked on something that you can considered to be average, then it would still result in an A, which was ridiculous. But at the same time, the adherence to the rubric gives a standard way for students to understand what the feedback is. Ideally, I think you have a strong rubric that can differentiate between performance so that there is an advantage for a real high-performing student. And then sometimes criterion reference and you feel that somebody is getting a higher grade, I do think that there are other ways to reward that good performance. So there are other ways to distinguish higher-performing students 
students. Sometimes I will share their work with their permission of, you know, in, in an announcement. Some of them really go the extra mile and that should be recognized. And if there's not a way to do that, you can't give them an A++++, but you can celebrate that. Because I think sometimes one of the challenges in the online environment is that we are providing a lot of feedback and not necessarily, it's harder to provide uh, what somebody described to me the other day as feed forward, right? It's harder to do that. But I do think that in responding to their work, there is that opportunity to both really provide some guidance for the lower performers on how to build that up, but then also to encourage that positive behavior from the highest performing students. I will echo that with a couple caveats. Um, I try to help manage expectations. And the manage expectations is efforts are not outcomes. And I'm looking for progress, not perfection. And the point is, is that the whole idea is for them to get better each and every day. Each student comes to us at a different level. And while there is evidence-based criterion, you know, that's within the box in there, there are some degrees of that. And so each week I would never, because I'm a professional editor, ever be able to completely edit a paper from soup to nuts because they'd quit. So I try and focus on two or three things each and every week and use an editing reference checklist for them to be able to constantly being improving. But they have to realize just showing up is not a grade. Just turning in a, a paper is not a grade. Again, efforts are not outcomes in there. And so I'm trying to actually prepare that. And I tie this to relevancy. And this is part of the andragogy of teaching. As you go back to Stephen Brookfield, we're looking at this is what we're preparing our students to do. It's not just in my class. As I'm preparing them to be a good employee, a W-2 employee, an entrepreneur, a business owner, something that I want to connect what I'm doing in class for what they're going to do out for then they understand the process as opposed to just another discussion post, just another grade. They got to understand that connection. And as soon as they do, they're like, oh, you mean an employer is going to look at some of my writing? It's like, yeah, they want the whole packet. You mean they're going to actually want to know about how I show up on time and the rest of it? Mm -hmm, they're going to want that too. So I'm trying to be able to make that. And I've had a lot more luck in my last, you know, my last years of teaching, not just adhering to the firmness of the, of the rubric, but showing that connection of why that rubric in there. I want to propose one of the questions that you guys sent in to everybody. If you could get professors to do one thing in each class, what would it be? And if you could get professors to stop doing one thing in each class, what would it be? Christy and I will know we've said some things for the 10,000th time, and it is so hard for us to not roll our eyeballs because we've said it over and over but to recognize that that student would have been the first time they've heard it and to still get excited as the first time as we do for the 10,000. So I create videos, I create blog posts, I created my own personal library. This way my students can have things that are evergreen that I did maybe five years ago that are still relevant today and they can see my enthusiasm. That will be a mechanism that I can keep them and to prove that it's me teaching the class. I think in an online class it's difficult when you don't have that physical connection. I try and do weekly videos for my students. I don't always do it, but I try to remember so they have a, a physical connection, even though it's video, and I talk directly to them to give them something that they really know that it's me if they choose to connect and encourage use of my office hours. That's my tip. Yeah, I would say that what I would like for instructors to stop doing is 100% good job. That's just such a disservice. But if you're listening to this podcast, you're not one of those instructors. <laughs> And obviously, the people on the screen with me are not like that. That's something we all, you know, as, as full-time faculty and program coordinators really need to try to encourage. People are here to do a good job. And sometimes I think we just need to provide what, like what 
our CTLE does, uh, provide the support to give people opportunities to engage in much more substantive ways. So I would say the one thing I would like for, for instructors to try is try an online synchronous session. Even if you are in an asynchronous online class, I will put in probably twice during the term the option for a live discussion in lieu of the written discussion board. And typically, I'll get about a third of the students to participate, which is actually perfect because in the size of the class that we have, you know, 20 to 25 students, a third is a manageable amount. If you had 20 people, it's not going to be manageable. I will set the parameters early. It's one hour, no longer. It gives us an opportunity to build affinity in a really unique way. And it's totally optional. But also if I make an optional session that has no outcome tied to it, now that's just extra work. So I do it in lieu of a discussion board and they can earn that grade in that conversation. So I would encourage people to try that. Ajish and Russell, what thoughts do you have? So uh, I will say this not from the perspective of an instructor, but from the perspective of a student. I was an adult student. I did my master's and all these part-time basis. So the thing that frustrated me the most is when instructors teach based on PowerPoint slides and not the PowerPoint slides supporting the learning process. So in many instances, especially when you have you are having a very heated case study discussion or whatever that the class is participating, and the, the worst thing to hear is the instructor say, I have to stop this discussion because I have to finish my set of slides. That is the most uninspiring thing that a student will have to hear. They will have put in their effort to analyze the topic. They would have written their talking points. They are here debating the opinion of another classmate. And then you have the instructor saying, okay, my time's up. I have to pass through the slide. I think that is a disservice to the students. The PowerPoint was never meant to replace the textbook or any other instruction material. It was just meant to facilitate the flow of thoughts and ideas and all these. I think there is too much reliance on PowerPoints, slides and all these. So I think we should all probably revert back to the blackboard and chalk days. <laughs> Amen. I hear you. Very good. As far as the to-dos then, following on what Cheryl has said, I've tried to do the same thing, to be present. Again, I take the feedback from the students to try and build that forward into the next session. And again, I've heard the caveat on podcast one, there will always be bad evaluations. So you have to take everything with a grain of salt. No matter what you do, you'll have people that love it and people that hate it. So you, you take that into a consideration, but get at what works. I had students that told me to have an introduction session would be nice. So I start all my classes, whether it's completely online or asynchronous, I start with the opportunity for a meet and greet session. So they can ask me questions as we're going in and I can share what I know already so far and give those tips and tricks on how to be successful in the course. I keep a running list of all the messages and emails that I send out to the class so that for the next round, I remember, oh, this is what tripped up people last time. Let me make sure I post this ahead of time to avoid that. And I say by doing this, by giving them this information up front, I save myself a whole lot of digital red ink correcting things later. Thank you, guys. We've been talking to Cheryl Lentz, Christy Kiernan, Ajish Morris, and Russell Schultz, all amazing instructors from Embry-Riddle. This has been Faculty Roundtable. Thank you guys for giving us an amazing discussion. Mm -hmm.